Hello and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and I am. Uh, this is a very special program. Um, we have uh, uh, again Dr. Elise Pedersen on, um, and and he's going to be co-hosting with me today. Um, Elias is, of course, the uh, the founder and, and artistic director at uh, Southwest Piano Festival. Um, he's also the program and competition coordinator at Arizona Piano Institute. And he's on the piano faculty at Arizona School for the Arts. And we have with us today um, a fabulous pianist and, and educator, um, Professor Daniel Shapiro. Um, uh, he is at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Um, he is uh, recognized as, as a leading interpreter of Schubert, Mozart, Schumann, Brahms, and Beethoven. And he's been there for 25 years. Is that is that right, Professor Shapiro? Uh, 23. 23 years. Oh, wonderful. That, that's fabulous. And, and, and he has a, a wonderful reputation as a first-class performer and a first-class teacher and, and coach, piano coach. Um, and, and, and one of the exciting things is he, right now, he is going through the Beethoven Sonata um, cycle, the 32 piano sonatas that Beethoven wrote. Um, it's actually his third time going through, which is, I mean, that, that's quite a feat just to do it once, but to do it three times, is, this is amazing. We, we like to talk about that. But uh, uh, Professor Shapiro, I, I'd like to ask you just a quick question. One of the things you mentioned in your bio is that you had um, extensive uh, collaboration with singers. And, and, and as, a, as a vocalist and pianist myself, I, I wanted to just ask you how that has um, influenced your playing and influenced uh, your art is in, with working with singers and, and that kind of collaboration? Uh, well, it's difficult to put into words, but basically, I mean, that's, I think, what we all strive to is to make our instrument like the human voice. And I find that there's this immediacy of communication uh, that the human that the human voice is capable of and the, the 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 subtlety of expression uh whether it's in dynamics or in timing or inflection uh is no more so than with the human voice and uh so often uh you know i even tell my students you know if, if you sing a particular phrase uh with as much expressivity as you can regardless of how good your voice is or isn't, uh, and then listen to how you sing it, and then try and make the piano uh, sound like the way your voice did, and that's already uh, quite a challenge. Uh, yeah. So that's one uh, aspect of it is, is all just this this uh, directness of communication, this uh, and also of course the the you know the composers were. That they're most inspired when they were writing for the human voice and a lot of the themes that come up in leader uh, for example nature and uh, and then of course love uh, you know those tend to uh, get not only into their song literature but into the you know everything else um, and so it's just a, a touchstone in so many different ways uh, and also learning how to breathe and what breathing is all about. I mean, watching singers breathe uh, is essential. And 
some years ago, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I started listen, listening to uh, Metropolitan Opera Radio on Sirius XM. And, you know, they play broadcasts of great opera uh, performances going back 60, 70 years. And just getting heavy doses of hearing, you know, Leonard Warren, Leontine Price, and people like this, I, it just in some way has affected and enriched my playing. Uh, in addition to, of course, the work that I've done on my own with, with singers. So, Dr. Lewis, why, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, get get us kind of ramped up talking about uh, a little bit less about voice, a little more about piano and Beethoven. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm of course, I'm very curious, uh, Professor Shapiro, that you're doing this entire cycle again in, uh, in many concerts, of course, many recitals. So I, I have a few questions based on that. And of course, you can take them one at a time or as you like. But when presenting the entirety of Beethoven's 32 sonatas, one thing is, how do you group them? How do you choose to group the sonatas together? Uh, and what parameters do you use? And of course, uh, I don't know the other two iterations that you did of these cycles, but did you do them in the same order? Or do you change that as you've, you know, obviously grown and, and become more and more familiar with these sonatas? So I'll let you take it from there. Uh, yeah, each time has been a different order. Um, and each time I do it, and this is no exception, it's sort of like, you know, kind of a, like a logic puzzle. I, mm. I have these certain parameters, and then once I fill those in, then I start to figure out, okay, if I put this sonata here, then I can't put that sonata there, and so forth. Mm. Uh, 
And so the parameters essentially are, I decide which ones I want to end with. Uh, mm. And um, then I want usually, although not exclusively, to avoid uh, having back-to-back -back sonatas of the same key, although in the next one coming up, uh, there will be two of the same key, but there will be an intermission in between. So, okay. <laughs> uh, but in this time around, what I wanted to do was keep all of the sonatas of a given opus together and also have the last three sonatas together. I hadn't done that mm -hmm. before. So okay. um, the first concert had all of the opus twos and the second concert had all of the opus 31. Then the next one will have all of the opus tens. And, and so on. And the last concert, the eighth concert, will have uh, the last three sonatas, as I said. And then the one before that will have the Heimerklavier. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, you know, and then I start to also figure out which would be good openers uh, and then just try and sort out the rest so that there would be balance, uh, you know, not no program too short, no program too long, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So it's just yeah, kind of a building act. Yeah, there must be a lot of logistics to uh, to think about, um, and uh, and certainly the Hammerklavier is that going to be in its uh, in its own recital, or are you going to pair it with a shorter like Opus seventy eight? Uh, it'll be paired with the two Opus fourteens, so <laughs> two oh, okay. of the shorter shorter ones. Oh, perfect. And we're we're looking forward to that. Actually, I I chimed into the last uh, recital you had with the Opus thirty ones with the Tempest in there, and uh, looking forward to the the next one as well. Um, I, I have another big question, and of course, mm -hmm. Mike, you can chime in with some things too. Um, what are some of the challenges of playing Beethoven? I, I know a lot of our listeners or Mike's listeners for And If Love Remains, uh, some are, many are musicians, many are not musicians. And uh, if you could describe what are the challenges, not just technically, but also musically, um, in, and maybe his sonatas compared to some of his other works for piano, um, although I, I tend to find all the things are in his sonatas, all of his his uh, compositional style and, and technical demands are there. But I don't know if you could just talk a little bit through some of those issues and what you find particularly from your from your experience. Oh, boy. Uh, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first, Mike, or how should we do this? No, no, go go ahead. Okay. I, I, I'd love to hear your input on okay. that. The challenges are... Many there are, you know, intellectual and emotional. Uh, there's the challenge of just, you know, understanding at a, you know, at a deep emotional level what is he trying to say, what is you know a mm -hmm. given sonata trying to express, uh, and that involves both you know the emotions and the intellect, and uh, and there is understanding uh, of how everything fits together. You know, he's, he's really a musical architect and to figure out structurally, architecturally, um, how all the pieces fit together. Uh, yeah. and it's one thing, you know, if you look at a lot of analyses in textbooks of Beethoven Sonata, you'll read things like, well, first comes this theme for four bars and then comes this for eight bars. And then you have this for 10 bars or whatever. Uh, you know, and then we go to this harmony, and then we go to that harmony. That's all well and good, but that's in a way just the starting point because that doesn't really tell you how it all fits together and how it ticks. So to figure out the inner drama of the, of the material, of what's really happening in terms of the drama of the material, that takes some thought uh, and some figuring out. Um, 
And it takes time. It takes living and and visiting the sonatas and putting them back and revisiting them uh, and so forth. How do, yeah, I was going to ask you, how does that, I mean, this, with this being your third time through, how has that influence, like how, how has that changed over time? Um, or has uh, it much? Hopefully <laughs> uh, they have ripened and deepened uh, because I've, you know, experienced life much more in between these. Uh, I mean, since the last cycle, uh, I've now have, three kids now ages uh, 18, 15, and 10. Uh, and so just going through all of that uh, um, is, you know, living life and all of the, uh, the joys and tribulations of raising kids. Um, and I think, I would like to think that somewhere that makes their way into how I play them or how I look at them uh, in some way, and hopefully enriches the experience in some way that I can't necessarily uh, pinpoint. It's just subconscious. It's there somehow. Right, right. Um, it kind of gets me to a question about your relationship with Beethoven as as a composer. Uh, uh, um, Elise and I have discussed, for example, we were talking the other day about how I, ha I have kind of a, I'm a latecomer to Brahms. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't love him at first, but I, I, he grew on me. And I'm wondering, with Beethoven for you, was he a love at first sight for you, or, or was he one that that you've you had to kind of grow to to appreciate and love? No, I guess because I started playing the first Beethoven sonata probably when I was nine or ten years old, so it was just always there. I, it wasn't an issue of sort of coming around to him. Mm. Uh, you know, like you know, Debussy is a composer mm. that. Recently, I'm starting to figure out more. Uh, I don't want to say for sure I've figured him out, but, I've, <laughs> but more than, than in the past. Uh, but Beethoven, I'm just sort of, he's always been there. And I mean, I think that doesn't mean that I fully understood him when I was nine, but uh, right. I've always just been with that repertoire and studying with teachers from the, the so-called Schnabel school, the Schnabel tradition, which emphasized this repertoire along with, you know, Mozart, Schubert, and, and so forth. So it's just always been a part of my life. I, I had a question. I don't know if I can jump in here. Um, you know, my, my experience, too, I've only played about or performed about eight or nine of uh, Beethoven's sonatas. And for me, that's already you know, a lot to take in. Um, and usually, I, you know, each one is in, in a separate program. I've never really performed multiple sonatas in a, in a program. Um, but do you find that his sonatas are what, what pianists might call pianistic. Uh, and what I mean by that is we sort of are in a school now, a piano school handed down to us from, let's say, Chopin and Liszt, uh, where things might fit a certain way. The, the piano has not developed so much since Liszt's time, the uh, last 150, 60 years. But in Beethoven's time, the piano was quite different. And maybe the, the, um, the demands for the keyboardists were different as well. So I'm just curious when you play these sonatas today, uh, for pianists out there, do you find them pianistic? Do you find them not so pianistic? What are what are the some of the ways that you might adjust your playing style um, to to suit them? It's a very good question and not easy to answer. Um, mm -hmm. Because pianistic, I think, has different connotations for different people. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And for me, I guess when I think of something as being pianistic, it means that 
there's just something about the physical act of playing the notes that feels natural and that's almost the physical act of playing the note is almost what the music is all about in a sense mm -hmm. for some Chopin and Liszt and so forth and so there is some of that in Beethoven especially earlier Beethoven but in that sense not so much mm -hmm. but if you think of pianistic as you know using the resources of the piano uh, then of course mm -hmm. Beethoven is very pianistic but almost paradoxically think because he is always turning the piano he uses the resources of the piano to turn the piano into not a piano yeah, <laughs> yeah. Turning the piano an orchestra, an orchestra or a string quartet or, or something like that usually an orchestra right uh and now also i have to say you know there there are a lot of awkward things you know i mean the the, the fugue of the harmaclavier is very awkward yeah. and uh far from the pianism of, of chopin or liszt i mean mm -hmm. As difficult as Chopin and Liszt can be, it, it just it's it's born of the hand of the pianist or the hand and arm of the pianist uh, yeah. as a point of departure. And Beethoven simply wrote the tones that he wanted uh, and uh, to carry over to the piano in the way he lived. Figure it out from there. Yeah, and good luck. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To, to help, do you think I care? Uh, you know, to help with you, do you think I care about your damned instrument when the spirit moves me? You know what he said. To right. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, I guess you could say it's not pianistic, but uh -huh. certainly in the early sonatas, you have a lot of pianistic figurations, and there are a lot of uniquely pianistic sounds and things like the Waldstein sonata uh, and mm -hmm. so forth. So I guess it, yeah, it's kind of a mixed answer. Mm, yeah, that's a good answer. It's tough to say. And my follow up for that. And again, this is uh, you could have many answers to this. And I don't know if it's uh, too simplistic to ask. But is there a sonata? Uh, I know Mike wants to ask about your favorite. No, go is ahead. There, there a sonata that you find the most difficult or most challenging? And in what way? Or maybe there, there are different challenges. So one sonata might be more challenging in this way and another in this way. But what are some? I mean, certainly, Hammer, Hammer Clavier is going to be up there in, in one of those aspects. What, if you could speak to the the technical challenges of different sonatas, or what you what you find in them? I would say the two most difficult are probably the, the yeah the Hammer Clavier and Opus One Hundred One. Oh, um, okay. Uh, the Hammer Clavier is just you know unquestionably it's a bear. It's it's forty over 40 minutes long. It's uh, very thick writing for the piano, very contrapuntal. Uh, the fugue, you know, is uh -huh. after you've been playing for 30 minutes and you're already tired and you have to play this fugue. Yeah. And not only that, but the last part of the fugue is the most difficult. So when you're really tired, you have to play the most difficult part of it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. also the technical, I mean, yeah, just there are all kinds of uh, uh, really technically difficult things about the armor clever and then of course there's there's the architectural issues and making sense of it all and there's mm -hmm. this incredibly profound slow movement of about the 19 minutes uh you know but having said all of that um there's something about opus 101 101 is somehow a bit more elusive and is the word i would like to use it, it it's hard to grasp it at any given moment. One can try to, quote, figure it out and try to, quote, understand it, uh, but to really convey its essence at any given moment is is very difficult. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why it's definitely up there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Um, this is a uh, Mike Lovett. I'm with uh, And If Love Remains, and and we're speaking. Uh, I'm kind of experimenting for the first time with uh, Elias here co-hosting, and uh, very excited for that. But we're we're here with uh, Professor Daniel Shapiro um, of the Cleveland Institute, who who is in the midst of performing um, the Beethoven Sonata Cycle, which is 32 his 32 sonatas, um, uh, and and. Uh, Two questions, just just by way of, of reference. If if people want to um, listen to your next performance, how would they how would they do that? And where um, uh, and, and what did you? Why did you decide to, to do uh, do that? Especially in the midst of a, the pandemic, um, I don't know if you planned on doing this for the two hundred fiftieth anniversary. Like talk talk us through those those things. But first of all, how how would somebody come to to listen to it when your next performance is? Uh, the next one is done through um, this organization called Piano Cleveland, uh, which hosts and runs the Cleveland International Piano Competition. Uh, I think it's pianocleveland.org, but I'm sure if you Google Piano Cleveland, you can find their website. And it's through them that there will be uh, uh, live streaming the concert, which is at 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, a week from today. Ah, boy, right on. And, and we will, we'll, we'll put links in the, in the show notes for people to follow. Okay. Um, cause I know there will be people that, that will really enjoy, uh, listening to this after hearing this, this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, again, was this something that you planned on doing, um, because of the anniversary come or, or is yes. this, um, okay. So there was something you plan on doing and how did things change and, and, uh, um, what, what was the decision process and actually going through with the performance and how you performed it um, uh, when the pandemic hit? Yeah, basically, obviously, I was not expecting uh, to <laughs> right. deal with the pandemic coming along, but I wanted to do it because of the Beethoven anniversary year. And it seemed about time to <laughs> to have another go at this cycle. Uh, so that all kind of came together. And... Um, um, yeah, that that's pretty much. Uh, and uh, and you're doing it. You're doing it online. Um, it, it seems you you're, you're doing it in a and as close to a performance setting as you can. I've seen other online concerts where where it feels more like a studio setting, um, and, and things like that. This is a bit more formal, um, which I appreciate you, you you going to that especially. But uh, um, is that what you were trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, because I, I wanted obviously I was originally hoping to be live recitals and I right. much prefer playing for, you know, live recital situations than, than, uh, f- for a microphone in an empty hall. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that is what it is. And, uh, but I like to come as close to, uh, experiencing the, the, the sense of a live recital as, as possible. Ah, oh, wonderful. Um, one more quick question, and then I, I think Elias has has another question for you. Um, we, we we talked about some of the more difficult ones for you to to perform. Um, just as a point of curiosity, do you have a favorite one that you like to perform that you just really look forward to? And do you have a favorite one that that may be different that you enjoy listening to? Oh boy, uh, hmm. let me think. I have a few that. Uh, I especially like, and I guess it's probably 
the nature of probably if in in most cases like this, uh, if you ask people, it'll not be the usual ones. You know, right. uh, if you ask an artist what their favorite painter is, they won't necessarily jump to Rembrandt or Michelangelo. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of you know nature of the beast. So. Yeah, maybe some of my ones are some of the, you know, one that I want to champion that are a bit, you know. But Opus 90, I especially enjoy playing. Um, mm. And Opus 78 also, which is yeah, uh, that uh, that's coming up in the uh, one after this one uh, on December 13th. Although the second one is really tricky. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> I love Opus That's a hard second movement. But it's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and there are certain movements that are I especially love uh, uh, the slow movements of the. I love playing slow movements. I guess I love the slow movement of the Harmon Clavier, the slow movement of thirty-one one, uh, uh, the slow movement of twenty-two. Those are some of my favorite, and twenty-two is one of my favorite ones also. Although the first movement is just a bear to play, uh, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's it was one of Beethoven's favorites, and there's just there's this kind of this this contentment and this uh, euphoric feeling about the whole thing that that is uh, quite wonderful. Hmm. Oh, Fab, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, it's funny to hear some of those. I I wouldn't have thought of twenty two, um, seventy eight. I can totally see as as just a joy to play. Um, I haven't performed that one myself, but it's it's so beautiful to open with. Um, but yeah, I, I had a question on, um, you know, Beethoven was such a meticulous uh, composer and and sort of fastidious in, in all of the, his markings. And if we think of comparing him just to a generation or two previously, uh, we don't get all those markings. We don't have all those um, characteristic things that, that made Beethoven so famous, like the subito piano or, or whatever. But um, I was just curious how you both perform some of his works and even how you teach a lot of it uh, because he's so particular and yet there are so many versions of Beethoven's uh, uh, sonata cycle out there with so many different interpretations. Of course, I know you come from quite the famous Schnabel tradition and of course we've all heard his performances. Many of us have his editions and his notes and fingering and all that. But how do you... um, square those those issues with so many different interpretations and i'm sure your interpretations have grown with uh, with beethoven's really careful and specific markings uh mike you want to have a go do you want me to start or <laughs> i think well i i think it's a very good question I, you know as far as like what how um um, <laughs> you know, I, I have not performed any of the sonatas in a, in a concert. And so I, I'm not one to speak to it directly. Um, so, but I do, I, I do, I am curious, um, about, about what your intentions, like the bat, that balance, it's interesting. Elias and I have talked about this a lot, like the balance that we have between the artist and, and the listener and, um, and, and the composer. In other words, you have your interpretation that you're trying to, um, share with the audience. Um, an, an audience has a certain expectation to hear a certain thing, and then the composer has written a certain thing that that he expected to be to be played, which may or may not all be the same thing. And I'm and, and along the same lines, I'm curious, like how do you, yeah, how do you square those circles there? Uh, maybe what I would say is, and this is also something I mean, I told the students and myself. Uh, 
Yes, there are a lot of recordings out there, uh, and a lot of them have, I guess, shaped what the public expects to hear. And there are a lot of recordings by great, wonderful artists, novel mm -hmm. and so forth. But yet, when we study each of these pieces, we have to put all of that aside. We have to, I always tell my students, mm. not to listen to any recording of any piece that they start studying, but to just study from the score itself. And not until, uh, maybe not until they performed it once, say in a studio class or a recital, where then you can go and see what Mr. Schnabel does or what Mr. Uh, Serkin or Edwin Fisher or whoever, mm -hmm. Annie Fisher, whoever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think also, kind of in that regard, um, the, we have to find our way with these pieces and do what Beethoven asks of us regardless of whether that's the way it's often done. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in the majority of cases, interpreters haven't gone far off and, and do credible, but sometimes you find things that uh, almost nobody does right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so if nobody, if that's fine. You know, if you think nobody else has done it right, then, then you do it right, or I'll do it right, you know, whatever. Uh, so all we can do is study this music uh, and follow his instructions and ask what they mean. Uh, it's one thing to just obey them, but you have to ask why they're there uh, and exactly, I mean, many, you know, uh, what, if he writes forte, what, is, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't just mean play loud. <laughs> right, uh, right. And so you have to uh, do a lot of thinking about what every marking means and also why it's there. Um, and of course, the later you go in Beethoven, the more specific he gets. Uh, you know, there's much, much more detailed markings of the late sonatas than the, than the very earliest ones. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I think one has to study this music very carefully and come up with one's, from that one's conception of the music, and then you go with it. and. But your but your feeling is it is it should come from the score first that that's the you know the Bible if you will that you need you need to uh, come up with your own interpretation your own idea before um, being influenced by by other people's performance. Yes. Yeah, hmm. I suppose theoretically you could say that's not entirely possible, but we're, right, we're yeah. do the best we can, and, and we have. But but there's a difference yeah. between listening to something with the intent of you know just happenstance listening to it, and listening to something with the intent of I'm going to be performing this, and and I want to, you know, uh, you know, I, I want to 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 hear how somebody else is doing it for that purpose. That, that seems to be two different types of listening. Right. Yeah. There are actually many ways uh, one can listen to something, I suppose. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, uh, yeah, one shouldn't listen for, well, Mr. X does this and I'm going to borrow that particular thing. Uh, although, you know, it, this is not like uh, copyrightable material. You know, if, if I do something that a phrasing that Schnabel does, uh, I don't have to worry about his estate suing me. You know, <laughs> right. it's, it's like you know, in the scientific literature, it's, it's public knowledge. And if I realized I was mistaken by something that I did in, in the phrasing or whatever that Mr. Snobble does is better, then fine. I've learned my lesson and I'll do it that way. <laughs> but hopefully yeah. I'm making a conscious decision based on what I've studied, you know, uh, and, and, and so on. Well, and, and I, and again, as, as Elias mentioned, with with um, you know, um, many in our audience, um, you know, they're not professional uh, musicians or um, 
but they're they're learning and they've actually I've had a lot of listeners. Which I'm one of the things I'm most proud of. I had a lot of listeners that have have through our conversations with Elias talking about some of the music that that he's performed um, has come to to grow to love some of this great great music. And and I'm wondering why to a modern audience is are these pieces important? Why? And this is kind of a big question. I, I understand like like <laughs> one of those bottomless questions. But I'm curious, just your your thoughts on. Why are they? What do they mean today? Today and 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 um, um, and you know why should why should somebody invest the time to to listen to um, these sonatas? Uh, Elias, do you want to go for? No, oh, I, we're we're interested in hearing your thoughts. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll jump in here, but here and there. But no, I, I'm very curious to hear what you think. Uh, I I mean I don't know if I have anything remarkably revelatory to say, but I, I would, no, because uh, lately I think there has been in some circles some challenge to the validity of playing Beethoven or the greatness of Beethoven. Uh, but hmm. I firmly do believe that, well, first of all, we know that Beethoven thought in terms of humanity as a whole and humanity of the future and that he kind of almost preaching his own gospel well, to for sure be at large, and so the message of Beethoven, uh, and you know the, the sense of ethics, the sense of uh, philosophical ideas, and and uh, and overcoming, and all that kind of thing, I think is uh, as resonant and important today, especially today with everything that's been going on, uh, as it ever was, and that Beethoven music continues to inspire us and to make it not, I mean, not only, you know, move us, uh, but to somehow, you know, when you hear a great performance of a Beethoven sonata, like when I hear a Schnabel performance of Beethoven sonata, one feels more aware of, I don't know, the space-time continuum and everything. In right. It. Uh, one feels wiser and better as a person. Yeah. Uh and this is, and Beethoven has, you know, even made remarks kind of to, to, in that direction. Uh, so I think uh, it's all therefore all the more reason why we can and should champion this music and proclaim it, uh, and uh, audiences can can be still moved and inspired by it. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a little bit of a follow up because you got me thinking. Uh, when, uh, when you mentioned a little earlier that uh, each time you've come back to these cycles, you know, your life has changed and grown and therefore your interpretations might have changed and grown. And I think with, uh, in my experience, playing something like a Beethoven sonata or, or works by Brahms or even Chopin, um, the, the really great masterworks, each time I come back, I find something new in them. Uh, and so I think there are other pieces that I've performed in the past, even very good pieces, and I, I won't necessarily mention them, but because I think they're very effective, they're very accessible. But when I've had to bring them back for concerts, uh, I, I don't find that I find not to be egotistical about it, but like I already figured out what needs to be said for that piece. I don't think there was anything deeper that I was missing the first time or or second time around. But with Beethoven or Brahms, you know, I always feel that there's there's something that uh, even if I studied it very well and recorded it and and uh, and all that, there's still something that I can find in it and discover. 
uh, for myself. So I yeah. do. You, I think you find that from what you've said before. But is that kind of your feeling with Beethoven? Absolutely. You know, and the the famous Schnabel phrase: "This is these are pieces of music that are better than can be played." Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so yeah. yeah, it's 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 almost you know the, the nature of a great work of art is that it is endless and unpindownable and endlessly uh, growing and, and living organism. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it's funny, I mean, yeah, we study a piece really carefully and, uh, and intensely and all that, and we think we've done a great job, and then we come back yeah. a year later and we, and we slap our forehead and we say, hi, mm-hmm. I'm such an easy, how stupid could I be? You know? uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. So it yeah. really is fascinating. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes even the most simple things can, can escape us. Yeah, uh, I, I thought it was interesting too. Sorry to jump in, but you mentioned before about the traditions of of a certain piece, and let's say uh, you know X number of people have have performed you know uh, a passionata, which is such a such a famous sonata, and there are certain ways to perform it that's just sort of tradition. And um, of course, it's hard to get away from ever hearing that piece while you when you started. Uh, because we've heard so many performances and recordings of it. Uh, and I often find myself, if I perform or play a piece, going back to a recording and then hearing somebody do something new, like, oh, I, I kind of like that. Maybe I will incorporate it. Maybe I won't. But um, to put you a little bit on the spot, do you find any particular places in Beethoven sonatas where the tradition, um, or at least the mainstream tradition, is is not correct or... Just, it's kind of been convoluted over the years, and we've we've lost our uh, we've lost the thread. We've lost the, the essence of that that passage. And I don't know if you have a particular one in mind, or many, or would have to search for those things. But um, I'd just be curious if there there are places like uh, that. For me, I would what jumps to mind first are the second movements of thirty one three and fifty four. I think both of those are played too fast. Uh, 31-3, the second movement, I think Schnabel plays much too fast. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, even when, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to listen to anyway. But uh, yeah, so sometimes there are certain tempi of certain piece that I, pieces that I think people uh, get wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to, let's see if I can... I mean, I know there are certain instances where a note could be different from one uh, addition to another, and I think there's yes. something in the and I, I should mention actually that this time around I have the advantage of the new Baron writer Jonathan Del Mar uh, Beethoven editions, which has all kinds of sometimes astonishing uh, hmm. new uh, things in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, even though every single recording uh, has certain notes, I have to realize that that's not what Beethoven wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's you know that's no fault of the of, of any of the interpreters. They just didn't have those resources those available to them. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Do you have any examples in mind? I think there's something in 101 from my recollection, but I I can't remember now. Uh, actually, in this concert upcoming, there's a little couple of things in the last movement of Opus 27, number one. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, um, let's see. I'm actually I'm at the piano. Uh, yeah. C natural instead of C flat. I have to hopefully oh, remember dun, dun. Oh, <laughs> to oh, do that when I play it. 
there's one actually in Opus 90, which I'm ashamed to say I totally forgot to do because uh, I'm so used <laughs> to it the other way. Uh, but in the recapitulation uh, of Opus 90, he wrote... sharp in the bass wow. yeah i'm not used <laughs> to hearing that wow, wow. yeah that's cool <laughs> uh and i so wanted to do that when i played it in the first concert and, and i forgot and i'm duly is that is that in that baron Ryder edition because i haven't seen that in any of the notes even in the various henley editions that have come out i think it's new to baron yeah and okay. and uh the the thing i mentioned in uh 27 2 and another little thing is is also a first in this in this edition Okay, and where did they draw that from? Do you know? Uh, Jonathan Del Mar went back to the sources, back to the autographs, uh, every okay. possible source, and did an absolute thorough oh. job of, of really? rediscovering everything. And he discovered things, you know, if you look in the critical, there are three volumes, actually four volumes. The Sonata takes up three volumes, and then the Critical Commentary takes up the fourth volume. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And very often you'll see the phrase "most modern editions." <laughs> you know, uh oh, most modern editions have this, which is not correct, uh, because they, you know, they maybe they took it from the first edition, which was obviously an error or something. Where they there was this new source that's been undiscovered, and you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's awesome. I mean, I have about six editions myself of Beethoven sonatas, but maybe this will be one to add to it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm fascinated. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, wow, that's, that's so cool. That really is. That it's that's that's really. I'm ex I'm very excited to hear the the upcoming uh, upcoming stuff. Now that's that's very cool. Well, I should mention. I think the the introduction to Opus 111, I feel, is often played too slowly. Uh, oh, but no, but, but, uh, oh. it's maestoso. It's not marked grave or grave maestoso or anything like that. And uh, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, this shouldn't be fast, but it doesn't have to be, it should be close to two to one, I think, to the, uh, the ensuing Allegro. Uh -huh. okay. okay. What do you think of some of his tempo markings, uh, which seem in some cases unreasonably fast for our ears today? You're talking about metronome markings, I guess. Metronome, sorry, yes. Yeah, metronome yes. markings. Uh, that's a very good question, and, uh... One could have hours of debate about this. Uh, fortunately for the, well, I guess fortunately, uh, there's only one sonata where he wrote metronome markings, the famous controversial markings of the harmaclavier. Right, which is and very And those fast. are just impossible. <laughs> well, and I and I've had um, Vinter on, who's too, you know, is a champion of the of the old, you know, the the one step <laughs> uh, uh, metronome markings that, that that we misinterpret a lot of those metronome markings. Um, oh, you mean as being double what they're supposed to be? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I have trouble swallowing that. I have to say, maybe I have to read up more uh, about that. But I just can't get behind, you know, uh, doing things like right, that. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. But maybe I'll learn and then realize otherwise. But I think, I mean, I find that if you look at his words, how he uses allegro and how he uses and when and how he uses allegro con brio and so forth, there's a certain consistency and a certain almost a system to how he uses these tempo markings. Uh, 
And not to go quite as far as Rudolf Kolisch, but you can find, you know, a similarity of tempo among his allegro con brios and, and so on mm. and so forth. And, um, you know, and then you get to kind of a fundamental dichotomy when you have um, something like the Pastoral Symphony, the first movement, which he marks allegro ma non troppo. Uh, and yet, if you play the metronome marking he gives, in my opinion, it simply does not sound allegro ma non troppo. If you play that metronome marking and ask any person what the tempo marking would be, if they you know heard it at that tempo marking, they would say allegro con brio, allegro vivace, whatever. Simply mm -hmm. does not sound. So do you go with the, the words or do you go with the metronome markings? Mm -hmm. And I've kind of come down on the side of the words. <laughs> That's cool, yeah. That's it. that's interesting. That's what um, in uh, as you immerse yourself in this these sonatas, uh, you know, I it's like getting yourself into a into a, a book series where you just you know you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, I'm I'm curious about um, what uh, what you what Beethoven has brought to his innovations that he's brought to the sonata um, form, um, you know, the, the things that uh, were innovative, that uh, his vision for the piano, I think that, that his vision for the piano is, is actually quite bigger than what the piano, <laughs> at least in his time, could produce. Yes. Um, so I'm curious about, like, what, what do you think his vision for these for these pieces and, and how, how, how that... Um, uh, how that vision kind of moved into other composers as we move into later romantic stuff? Um, what I would say uh, is that, I mean, you know, yes, there are all these uh, revolutionary things and different experimental things and so forth that he did uh, with the form and whatnot and the sound. But the, if I were to pinpoint the fundamental step that he took that was then later developed was that I think consistently he was really the first one to make a whole sonata as one entity, one artistic statement, one philosophical statement. Mm. Uh, so not three movements or four movements, uh, contrasted as they may be, they somehow all tie together in some way not in every piece of course uh but the, the later you go the more consistently so so that something like opus 110 or opus 90 whatever it might whatever it might be appassionata uh you have the feeling of the totality of one artistic testament one statement as a whole and i think that's what brahms did with the symphonies and 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 schumann and and, and so on so on and so forth just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, how would you contrast that to uh, a sonata by Mozart, even a late one? I'm I'm thinking of like the B flat or even the the 576 B major. Do you think those are more individualized movements, not as cohesive, or no? I think in Mozart you do find some of this uh, beginning to happen, uh, mm -hmm. and maybe the, yeah, the late symphonies. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, I guess Mozart was starting to move in that direction. 
but uh, maybe not quite to the degree of, of yeah, the singular uh, vision. Of yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and I guess Haydn too. I mean, he has the humor, but I can see that there are things that are separate, and maybe only in the really late ones do you get a full work. And and I think even in Beethoven's time, it wasn't necessarily customary to play an entire sonata together, correct? And certainly not multiple sonatas in a in a recital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, how do you uh, how do you find um, performing? I mean, I'm sure you've played many recitals in your life where you had a Beethoven sonata in them, uh, amongst many other pieces. How do you find that's different than playing a recital solely of Beethoven sonatas? Um, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, I play what I have to play, and I, I mean, I guess there is a bigger shifting of gears. I mean, there's huge shifting of gears in amongst uh, sonatas of Beethoven. But mm -hmm. if I have to go from Beethoven then to Schumann, that's a whole clean slate. So I guess yeah, there's a bigger shifting of gears. Yeah. Oh, cool. This is, uh, my name is Mike Levitt. I'm with Andif Love Your Mains. We're talking with Daniel Shapiro, professor at England, or uh, England, Cleveland <laughs> Institute of Music, um, and uh, Dr. Elias Peter, uh, Pedersen. And uh, uh, I, it's been such a wonderful, uh, some wonderful time with you. Um, he's Professor Shapiro is going through the the Beethoven um, cycle, um, and we'll have links to his performances uh, in the show notes. Um, Elise, what, um, what, anything else you want to wrap up with? Or any other final thoughts you you have? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. We, you know, he's uh, Mr. Shapiro. You're, you've really talked about so many different aspects of playing these sonatas and how they fit into Beethoven as a whole, and how we should listen to them today as musicians, as pianists, as non-musicians. It's uh, it, it's really wonderful to hear all your thoughts. So I just uh, really <laughs> it's been a wonderful experience for me. Too. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on, and, well, thank and you. it's, it's been a pleasure. Talk about this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I could yeah. talk all night. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and we should do it again. You know, yeah. as you know, I would, I would really, really enjoy that. Maybe as, as we get closer to after a few performances, we can do it again. It'd be a yeah, joy. You're, you're going to do, I think one uh, recital per month. Is that correct? Yes. That's the plan. Yes. And so do you have the third one and you have a total of eight or nine? I can't remember. Eight. Okay. So eight yeah. recitals. So maybe after you've completed the cycle, we could have you back on and, and talk about your experience in doing that whole cycle again. Yeah, whatever. I'm happy to do this, whatever you wish. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Well, thank you, Professor Shapiro. Is there anything you'd like to add or, or share with us before we, before or anything I forgot to, to let our um, listeners know about you? And No, I mean, I get, maybe I was thinking I meant to mention this before, so maybe it might be good to add this. Uh, just as what I was saying about uh, the performer not relying on the traditions, you know, to come up with this interpretation. I think as an audience member, I, as a listener, I hope what the listener will do is pretend they've never heard this piece before. Thank you. Because yeah. I, as a performer, also have, try to have the feeling when I step on the stage that I am in a sense turning into Beethoven and that this music is being created for the first time. It's like a world premiere. So one has to imagine every performance of every Beethoven's not as a kind of world premiere. Uh, and uh, hopefully that might be a, a, a good way for us to try to listen to uh, a piece like this that we've all heard 
I, I sincerely appreciate you saying that because I think it's it's important that um, that we that especially those people who who may feel maybe a bit intimidated about approaching this music, um, you know I think if you think of it as a world premiere, if you think about this is something brand new and something exciting and and as it will be, I mean there's no doubt it will be exciting and it will be a lot of fun. Um, I think it's a it's a great way to approach this and as as a musician to to, to try to think of it as a clean state to do the best you can to do that is a good uh, yoga technique if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we really sincerely appreciate you being on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Let's, let's do this again. And yeah. uh, um, you can find in linked in the show notes uh, links to his performances. I hope you'll you'll check it out and and make uh, you know good comments. And and we look forward to to doing this again. Thank you very much, Professor Shapiro and, and Dr. Patterson. Been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. We'll see you in the flesh sometime soon. I yeah. looking forward looking forward to that for sure. This is and if love remains. <laughs>